Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and glad to help you find focus on your journey towards senior leadership in the charitable world. Thanks for listening. And if you're an aspiring nonprofit leader or maybe one that is already in place but simply wants to get better, you're in the right place. I'm glad to bring you these weekly conversations with nonprofit experts who are on the cutting edge of our sector. And if you would, do me a favor. Share this episode with one other person so we can continue to build a global community that's focused on nonprofit leadership. Well, I'm delighted to bring you this episode with Tasha Anderson, who's the founder of a consulting practice called The Charity CFO, which helps bring both accounting and thought leadership to nonprofit organizations everywhere. And of course, what makes Tasha's advice so valuable is that it's not just her content expertise, but the fact that she's worked as a nonprofit CFO. She's been an auditor, a board member, a volunteer. She understands the world you're in as a nonprofit leader. With that in mind, we dove into those critical questions you should be asking in the financial arena at your nonprofit organization. Some good ones. You know, if you're new to your leadership position, what numbers should you be focused on and what might you be comparing with other similar nonprofits? What exactly are you talking to your accountant about? How can that resource be most helpful to you as a nonprofit leader? And what about that business office and the fundraiser that are not getting along at your nonprofit? What's the source of that friction and how can we make it better? And, you know, Tasha also gets into a similar topic that we've had on this podcast before, the turnover in the fundraising space. But as Tasha points out, we're losing a lot of finance talent also in the nonprofit sector. And Tasha has some great ideas about that as well. Well, don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode. It is number 87. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com and you'll find all of the resources that Tasha and I discuss, as well as more information on the great work she's doing through the charity CFO. Speaking of the resources on our landing page there for this episode, while you're on our website, make sure you connect with us. Get on our email list and make sure you receive our free weekly resources uh, with episodes just like this one as part of the information we're providing. Let us help your nonprofit. Maybe it's to build your strategic plan that you're contemplating right now. Or maybe you need to re-engage your board that we could help facilitate a session with them. Or maybe we can just help you focus on your next step toward nonprofit leadership. We can help you as a coach, trainer, or maybe you want to be part of one of our mastermind programs, one of which just kicked off this spring. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Tasha Anderson. Tasha, thank you for joining me on the path. I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Tasha, I'm excited because not only do you bring kind of a technical expertise as an accountant and the great work you're doing through the charity CFO, but you've been in nonprofit leadership. And I know mm -hmm. our listeners will benefit from how you've bridged that experience with the work you're doing for many nonprofits now. So maybe start with that. How did you get into the work you're doing now and how was it influenced by your nonprofit work? Well, it's it's funny. I think like many of us that 
that end up in the nonprofit space. It was never planned. It was, it was kind of accidental. I actually right. started my career. <laughs> I, I like to always ask that question. How did you end up here? Um, and so I started my career in public accounting. And one of the things I quickly realized nonprofits uh, within that particular professional service, you know, industry was, was a little bit of a stepchild. Uh, you know, no one really wanted to work with this particular type of client. It wasn't efficient. It wasn't profitable. They had lots of um, extra requirements, but then it was oftentimes pretty messy because of the transition and the change uh, right. in the accounting leadership at these organizations. And that was an area that I felt like I could spend more of my career being some sort of solution to the talent gap in this space. So uh, I fell in love with the mission. I fell in love with the people and decided to leave public accounting and take a job as a CFO of an organization. Um, and I did that for about four years. And when I say the CFO, I mean the CFO and all of the things administrative. So HR, <laughs> right. IT, you know, wow. all of those sorts of things. So we can talk more about that later. But And that's how I ended up. And, and I did that for about four years. And I still found this overarching need for um, expertise in the small to middle market. So organizations that might be something like less than 6 million, which makes up substantially almost all of the nonprofits, really. Indeed. I mean, we think about the, these big monster you know, nonprofits, but really most of most of them are in this small space. And these large ones can afford people like me and hire them, but many, many can't. And so that's when I decided to start an accounting firm to kind of create a shared service model for um, accountants for these smaller to middle, middle-sized nonprofits. Excited to jump into that because you're right. Um, the talent challenges for a nonprofit leader. A lot of my guests, Tasha and I've talked about the fundraising space, turnover challenges there, but you are going to illuminate, I think, an equally important, perhaps more important challenge uh, of, of talent and management in this uh, accounting and all the other related spaces. Before we do that, um, you know that I've been asking my guests about the their productivity <laughs> or lack thereof mm-hmm. or the challenges in this virtual space. Have you found any particular tips or tricks to help you stay uh, connected and organized with everything going on? Yeah, I like to think so. I mean, so I've no stranger to burnout, you know, in my former roles. And I think burnout is a, is a huge, you know, issue within the nonprofit space. And Oftentimes I find that my burnout is caused from a constant state of being overwhelmed with no real feeling of success or production. I'm not actually completing any tasks and my list just keeps mounting and mounting. So my favorite productivity hack, um, I wake up at 5 a.m. every morning. And the first thing that I do, um, I have, I kind of have a routine, right? And it's, it's not, you know, just go to the gym and have this high intensity workout. It's not, um, you know, necessarily morning meditation, although that is part of it. The first thing I need to do is look at my planner and, and look at what I've assigned to my team members. We have a workflow software and I know many nonprofits are starting to get more and more into a workflow software, which basically is a roadmap for all things that need to be done and all the people that are playing a collaborative part in that. And right. we're no different. Um, I go in and I check on my team. I, I look at emails and I put my to-do list for that day, or I confirm the to-do list that I've already established for that day. And I make sure that that makes sense. I'm preparing for any meetings. And by prepare, it's simply knowing, oh yes, I have that meeting. <laughs> and it's top of mind rather good, than running good. very reactively. Yeah. And, and so I try to tackle um, a few like main things. I kind of have a morning routine and my morning routine generally covers responding to any of my staff people through that workflow software. So eliminating myself as the bottleneck in any of the work, 
Um, I also tend to try to read something uh, that's, that's more kind of professional development in nature. And then if there's one single thing that I find myself not able to make time for during the day, I try to work on that. So right now I've been working on an online course and I might work on that for about an hour each morning before I even get up and, and kind of get dressed and start my day. And, and that's the most important thing that I need to do. Eliminate the bottlenecks, right? Um, respond to any urgent emails and um, kind of work on the most important priority for me in that given time. And that Fantastic. will always change. Yeah. I'm, I'm also a fan of the 5 a.m. routine. Love that. Uh, it, it seems like, Tasha, then the rest of your day, almost no matter what happens, you feel like you've been productive, right? Because by 8 o'clock in the morning, you've already kind of I eliminated probably, the bottlenecks and gotten stuff done. Yeah, and that's what I love about it because historically, if I don't start my workday until 8.30 or 9, um, I never accomplish all the things I want on my list. And if I am kind of an early riser, and I feel at least psychologically more in control and I know what's ahead of me for the day and I can be more proactive rather than reactive. I can generally accomplish. There's very few days where I don't get everything done that I need to get done. Um, and like you said, you're, you're almost more productive by 8am than maybe I would ever be between nine and five. Yeah. Um, great true. advice. Yep. Great advice. And of course, it speaks to just the importance of rituals, isn't it? And routines mm -hmm. that allow you to be productive. And I know that is something that can get the wheels turning of our nonprofit leader listeners. Mm -hmm. Speaking of something that brought them to this episode, I'm sure Tasha is kind of how we've uh, uh, headlined this episode, the key numbers. Uh, and as an mm -hmm. accountant and as a CFO, you know this, our listeners are nonprofit leaders or they want to be Let's start with that. You know, are there some key numbers you would begin with if you're working with a nonprofit executive director that they need to better understand? Absolutely. And I think the first thing when we start talking about numbers, people start dropping off and getting confused and overwhelmed. Pretty quickly. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and really, I try to break accounting down in a way that makes sense. I mean, we all have our own accounting going on in our lives, even in our personal lives, right? Money coming in our bank accounts, money leaving and some sort of simplified budgeting. Um, we can't overspend beyond what we can bring in, right? And the same is true for an organization or a business. Um, it's just on a larger scale. And so some of the things that I talk about with respect to just general financial management, um, I, I kind of have an internal pot that I would recommend in terms of a bucket of things that you need to know internally. Right. And then, of course, you need to know what those externally, your whether it's your board or your funders or charity watchdogs, you need to know what they're going to be looking for. So I have kind of two sets of buckets here. For Excellent. internal, um, you know, a lot of times we talk about revenues and expenses and budgets and all that. And really in my mind, those things are very secondary to how much cash do you have? How much liquid cash do you have coming in versus going out? And can you afford to keep up with the bills that you need to pay and payroll that you need to make? So knowing what that metric is, and I usually use that as a days in cash. And so for, for some of you that may not know what that ratio means, it essentially means if I did not bring in another dollar and continue spending at the rate that I've been spending, how much, how long in, in the number of days will I run out of money? And so yep. for a nonprofit, yep. generally when it's think somewhere around 30 to 90 days, depending on your organization. And, and it's like, well, Tasha, that's a pretty big spread depending on my, my, my business. Think about your funding. So if your funding is concentrated in specific areas, I'm talking about government contracts. And for some reason, the state budget 
you know, came to a standstill and the payments got delayed, you might want a higher number of days in cash. If you're an organization that has lots of crowd fundraising and, and individual donors are consistently giving you gifts, then, then maybe you can operate in a little, um, little bit of less of cash. So kind of think about the risk assessment there. Another thing I like to look at um, that I think many leaders of organizations aren't necessarily, they're looking at a global picture. How is the overall organization going? Right. And I would challenge you to segment that down into your different departments, programs or grants or contracts, depending on what makes sense for your organization and look at total revenue, total expenses. And if you're operating in the deficit, that tells you how much are you fundraising for each program? And does that make sense? So for example, I used to be CFO of an organization and all of the other programs substantially broke even. We had one program, which is the smallest program in terms of people served, but it had a substantial fundraising underwriting uh, need, right? Right. We're talking over a million dollars a year for that particular program. And it was all government funded. It was just the deficit between what the government paid us and what we really use, you know, needed to operate the program was so substantial. And without knowing that information, you don't know if your programs are sustainable, viable, or even just ask yourself the question, does it make sense for us to keep serving you know, this population of people for this amount of effort? Or could we have a greater community impact um, by pivoting those funds somewhere else potentially? But, um, Tasha, sorry to interrupt you, but I guess the challenge would be many of us as nonprofit leaders might blend all of our programs together. And is that your point mm-hmm. that by not segregating them by program, I might miss that vulnerability, I guess, to annual fundraising? Exactly. To the degree that it makes sense to break them out, it doesn't mean that you can't speak of them or fundraise for them or um, present them on your financial statements on a more consolidated basis. But to right. the degree you can drill down and, and analyze you know, different programs, and sometimes it's not even programs, it might be a funding opportunity, Right. Um, and you have a contract, you don't know if it's a good contract or a bad contract until you actually look and see how much money am I generating versus how much am I spending? And that's just an area that a lot of, um, organizations or accounting structures not really equipped to do. Uh, it is, it is more work, but it gives you more data to make better decisions as to, Hey, if I know I need to fundraise a million dollars a year, where's that a million dollars really going? Absolutely. Which departments? And does that make sense? Uh, For example, the organization I used to work with, we had a private pay adoption program um, where in theory, this should have been a a money generator for us, right? We were actually fundraising. uh, And this wasn't necessarily a situation that we prioritized in terms of fundraising. and, And it wasn't until we started looking at those numbers to say, we either need to raise the price of this um, or we need to stop doing it because there's so many other players in this market where we were just kind of doing this as a ancillary benefit, if you will, to the programming. Exactly. Um, and exactly. we decided to stop doing it because it was costing us more money than we can bring in. Um, and it wasn't core to our mission at that point. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And, and again, I love the tactical kind of application here. Cash on hand. How many days could I survive if not a single dollar of revenue came in? And to your point as to what is an appropriate uh, kind of uh, benchmark there, it depends on the organization, right? To go back to that, Mm -hmm. it's not, you wouldn't say universally that everybody needs to have 90 days cash on hand or something like that. Correct. I I totally agree with that. It depends on your type of programming. So for example, those that have residential centers that we can't necessarily just, you know, throw our patients or clients out, um, you know, there's nowhere else for them to go. 
uh, you might want to have more on hand um, because of, of just the sensitivity of things. If it's less critical in terms of basic needs or something like that, you might decide, you know, we're okay with, 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 with operating at less than. And I will say, so that's more internal. Those are the things that I look at because those are, you know, we need to keep the lights on and and the engine turning here. Um, External though, what people are going to be looking at are going to be, and you all heard these before, operating reserves. So um, can you weather a storm, uh, which kind of goes into days in cash, but it can go beyond just your cash, like your investments or anything else. And then also your expenses, you know, how much are you spending on program versus, you know, admin or fundraising or things like that. So those are, those are the kind of things, the metrics that you at least want to be aware of, because if you're not in line with those metrics, you want to have an understanding or, or at least a rebuttal to why you're not there yet. Yeah, And what those would generally be, yeah, I mean, usually it's 25 to 75% operating reserve of your total budget. So whatever your budget is, you should have somewhere between 25 and 75. Again, that's a huge spread right. um, in, in reserves, meaning, you know, kind of in the savings account, essentially, uh, not to oversimplify it. And then generally, the IRS and other charity watchdogs like to see, you know, at least 75% of your expenses are going to program rather than to fundraising or general and administrative. So, so 75% may be the target uh, at, at that end of the spectrum. And it, when you're looking at an organization, do you look kind of for comparisons, um, you know, comp organizations that to see where they stand? Or if I'm an executive director, how would I best determine, you know, where I should be on those kind of spectrums? Yeah, generally you could look at, you know, sometimes what we do if we're questioning, you know, a particular organization and how they're faring, you know, 990s are public information exactly. and you can go on to the IRS website or GuideStar and download if you know that you have some peers within your community operating in the same spaces, you could pull that tax return information and do just kind of a quick test. We do that with um, officer comp analysis to see kind of where we're at from a, from a recruiting standpoint, and then also reinvestment into fundraising and M&G. And, you know, I think one thing that I've observed, people in the nonprofit space get very worked up with these ratios. Yes. Uh, right. You know, Tasha, you know, I'll be honest with you, I've never seen an organization not get funding or be penalized in some way. And I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I have not seen in the 15 years that I've been doing this where an organization has been penalized for over underspending in any particular area. Um, That said, I will say that some funders say we will cap your quote unquote indirect cost at 10%. You spend whatever you want to spend, but we're not paying for any of that. Um, so I think that, you know, we've been talking about this for years and years, changing the narrative on how much we should be able to spend on indirect costs. I've not seen people be penalized for that. Good, um, good. There's a lot of talk, and, isn't uh, there, about the, the overhead myth, so to speak, or what we're spending on certain things. Is that what you're also exactly. clarifying there? So, yeah. So I wouldn't worry as much about what are those exact percentages as much as, can I back up the decision for why the organization hasn't invested so much into this space? Like, so for example, I've worked with a couple CASA organizations, if you're familiar with this. CASAs are predominantly volunteer driven. Most right, of their right. entire operation is, is, is volunteer. There's certain areas that they're not willing to volunteer, uh, you know, use volunteers, their accounting, their IT, you know, those professional services. So their statements are going to look very skewed that, wow, why are you spending all this money on, um, you know, 
these administrative services, well, that's because everything else we do is ran by volunteers by nature of what we are. Um, so as long as you have a good explanation for it um, and understand, but if you're an organization leader that gets you know deer in headlight look when somebody says, why are you operating like this? And you don't know, I mean, you should probably know and you should have a good rebuttal is what I'm saying. <laughs> exactly. As long as you have a good answer, it doesn't mean you have to have yes. the same answer as every organization, but be able to articulate what you're doing and why you're doing it. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Tasha, I've seen, as I know you have, that organizations that sometimes just um, entangle themselves in reporting. And I love the the simple strength of what you're saying here. What are the key internal measures and metrics? What are the key external? Do you advocate for your clients to, it, I take it this is the type of reporting an executive director does for their board on a monthly or quarterly basis? Or is there any other advice you have on what exactly I report and how frequently I do it? Yeah, I think as a, I'm, I'm in favor of the more reporting in terms of the people, the better. Right. So okay. I kind of have a tiered approach, keep the board reporting simple, but transparent so that they can keep their conversations on high level. I've, I found myself in too many board meetings why, uh, where we are, you know, discussing why we're $600 over budget on office exactly. supplies, but nobody's <laughs> talking about the $500,000 deficit that we have in fundraising. So um, I like to keep it um, consolidated and summarized enough to, to focus on the key issues, right? Um, the finance committee gets more information, but not so much where they need to be meddling into your day-to-day -day operations. I, I, I was in a board meeting one time where the finance committee is suggesting that we, you know, change some of the activities that we do within our programming. And I'm not, this was a school. I'm not talking about, you know, huge. I'm talking about well, for Mother's Day tea, instead of muffins, can we have bagels? Because yeah. bagels cheaper. It's like we've lost it. I need your <laughs> exactly. we've lost the meeting exactly. now, haven't we? <laughs> exactly. And so, um, and these are true stories. I wish I was being um, dramatic. Yeah, um, sad but true. But, yes. So, how can we keep the finance committee enough to where they can really roll up their sleeves and help us make some good decisions? Now, the level of the muffins versus the bagels conversation. Certainly, one of the things that I've noticed with with accounting um, reports, they oftentimes don't get into the program leaders. They don't get into the program leaders' hands. So those that are actually running the programs and managing the budgets, they may never even see where things are being spent and how much money do they have left. And what I've found in my experience as a CFO, by not creating that transparent reporting system, you've now become good, bad, good cop, bad cop with respect to the budget. And everybody was coming in my door Tasha, can I buy some folders for the program? And and I just kind of felt like this is your budget to manage. And so however you choose to spend that money should be within your discretion. Um, I don't need to make the decisions on which folder you're going to buy because one is cheaper than the other, something to this effect. Yeah, that's um, just like a culture of micromanagement. Otherwise, right, Tasha, that you're getting into if we don't yeah. establish those ground rules. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, I think, later, but that's yeah. where some of the, I think, tension comes into play with the different departments within your nonprofit, because you have your accountant micromanaging your program and your fundraising people. <laughs> exactly. Speaking and, of tension there, right? Yes. Well, let me ask you one more question in this kind of comparative data. Um, do you encourage nonprofits to to kind of set uh, fairly regular comparable organizations or aspirational organizations that we benchmark against on a regular basis 
you know, I've seen that maybe in very to varying degrees, but wondered what your thoughts are. If do I want my board to kind of pay attention to other comps in our sector or aspirational orgs in our sector, or does that get overcomplicated? Yeah, I can see why that would be really good in theory. Um, I, I think there's some challenges though. Like for example, I work in a lot in the early education space, and some are very, very um, embedded with philanthropy, and they get a lot of, uh, so on paper and their programming, they look very similar, right? Um, Internally in their infrastructure, they are much different. They might have much more fundraising support and they might be able to do more wraparound services different than an organization that does not have that philanthropic support. And they are much more stripped down, although on paper, they all look like early education centers, right? Exactly. So how do really, yeah. When do we compare apples to apples, right? And their staffing looks much different. So the one that doesn't have a lot of philanthropic support, they don't have a fundraising department. So their fundraising expenses are very insignificant. As opposed to this other organization, they're both Head Start agencies. They both serve the same communities. They're both similar in size, but even their staffing is completely different. So I think that one of the challenges with trying to benchmark yourself too closely is then having to go down those rabbit holes of your board and say, well, what happened here was, and, and why this is different, Um, it might lose sight. But I think what's important for a finance committee or board to know are those overall goals or best practices or strategies, um, days in cash or operating reserves or, you know, um, employee turnover, for example, Uh, you know, those sort of things. And then they manage to their goals, um, but still being aware, you know, how much makes sense to spend on these areas, you know, how much, especially when you're talking about staffing, um, the recruiting and the staff retention, because, you know, in some of my schools, they will lose their staff to other schools. So they need to be aware of what's going on. But I think to compare themselves too closely could become more complicated than it probably needs to be. Point well taken. And that's exactly what I was hoping you'd get into. So there, there is some value perhaps in comparison, but be careful that you don't create mm-hmm. unintended consequences or discussions that maybe you're not really ready to have or need to spend the time on having. But let me jump into another exactly. one, Tasha, that you're the perfect one to ask. As an executive director, I may or may not have great experience in finance. So mm-hmm. what should I be asking my accountant? Um, you know, because again, I don't know what I don't know. So this is, I'm sure, where you'll tell us this is why your accountant is so valuable. I think the first thing that I want to know, um, and it's less on I don't understand how to read financial statements, but if I'm a CEO or executive director, I need to know high level, how is the organization going? And are there any immediate issues? Um, Just kind of a summary of what the red flags are. So as an accountant, you know, what are the things that you're concerned about? And summarize that to me as in in my position so that I can be able to be informed when a funder might ask me or a board member might ask me. And I think sometimes um, executive directors will simply just get a financial report and then they're busy doing hundred million other things. And so they can never actually pour through the numbers, assess what the numbers mean, summarize any of the pain points. So first and foremost, ask your accountant for kind of an, an executive summary, if you will, um, and figure out what those red flags would be. The second thing that I think that most nonprofit, um, nonprofits and their accountants aren't necessarily summarizing in a great way are these ideas of restricted funds. And this goes back to my cash. So many yes. times yep. I've seen organizations have an amount of cash in their bank account, not thinking it to the next level, which is, but how much of this cash is earmarked for a specific purpose? 
And that just simply does not show up on, you know, probably 95% of the financial statements. That's not the way accounting systems are really designed. That's more of an outside of the accounting system summary your, your, your accountant would be keeping track of. And so sometimes, so for example, we've worked with a church um, that had very little in their bank account, but they had probably $100,000 in restricted funds for all their special offerings and whatnot. The reality is they've spent those monies, right, on operations unknowingly. They were underwater. If wow. That makes sense. Yeah. So if you don't know that as a as an executive director, uh, you should be paying attention to that. So think about those things. And, and back to restricted grants, contract utilization or grant utilization, especially if you have to offer certain types of number of services, or if it's reimbursement in nature, are you trending to successfully utilize that contract or not? And is there anything that you can do differently to make sure you're successful in that? And as you know, all your time in this space, if you're not consistently utilizing your contracts, then they will consider whether they should reduce your funding or move to another provider that can utilize those contracts, right? So that was a big area. I kept really close track on because we're losing money on the table. Um, And that's easy to do because you get these contracts and then you have to hire and you have to train and then maybe someone goes on leave and, you know, somebody changes jobs. And there's a lot of variables that can make you unsuccessful in um, not utilizing those contracts. So if you're not keeping track of those, your accountant should definitely be monitoring that. Such Um, a good point. And because I was going to ask you and sorry, you know, uh, the, the biggest area I would speculate organizations get in trouble might be that illusion that I'm a lot of restricted money in the bank makes me feel like I've got a lot of money in the bank when in fact yes. I could be underwater. Yes. Or similar, but alternatively, oh, I don't have much money in the bank, but oh shoot, I, I actually committed this $150,000 of, you know, specific program or specific items that I'm supposed to be purchasing. Maybe somebody gave you money for capital improvements. Um, And you spend that money. Uh, And how are you ever going to get that? (laughs) And that's not uncommon, unfortunately. Well, clearly our accountant is the one or someone on staff we'll talk about needs to make sure we keep that aligned so that we don't get in trouble. And, you know, I I laugh at a comment you and I had in a conversation you made before that the challenge of when things are tough, but also you've seen a lot of challenges when things are going well, organizations are growing. Uh, I guess the quote was kind of, you know, more money, more problems, but talk about yes. that, Tasha, what do you see uh, or what are some of the the red flags maybe when an organization's growing? I think the biggest challenge is, is as a, so I tend to work a lot with social services. So as an organization that operates in that space, um, as they grow in size, that means they're probably getting more and more and more funders. And I think the, the easiest area to misstep is, having all of these different funders and all of their different compliance requirements and quickly losing sight of, you know, what are all of those things that we've promised to other people? And um, I remember I worked for an organization, they were at the time 121 years old and 121 years later, (laughs) when I was there, we actually sat down and, and compiled an entire list of programmatic outcomes and other things we have to report on, track on. And we had five pages front and back oh my of different things. You know, So that's easily an area where we can misstep. But I think to, to kind of piggyback off of that, so knowing what you're required to do 
and then having the infrastructure to do it. And infrastructure, I think sometimes people think, well, you know, it's it's just a gradual increase as your organization increases, but sometimes it's more of a step growth. And what do I mean by that? Yeah, right. Maybe you're at a place where you need to ha- hire an HR person and you can't hire a 0.25 FTE. Now we need a 0.3 FTE. It's not that simple. Sometimes you need a full-time person now to build out that infrastructure and then scale with that person. I mean, the same could be true for accounting and whatnot. So as we grow, the infrastructure just does not keep pace with funding. Um, And sometimes the funding we get is a one-time grant of $5,000 for a consultant. Well, yes, that might be helpful, but the $5,000 consultant isn't going to continue um, that function of the business in perpetuity for $5,000 one time. And so I challenge many boards and nonprofits to the extent that they can to find ways to reinvest in themselves, to take that plunge and say, hey, we're going to give ourselves, you know, two to three years to absorb this position within our operating budget. I, I made this argument and was pretty successful in it. I told my board when I was, um, you know, when I worked for an organization, I need a fun, an HR person and we can't afford a full one-time you know, position, full-time, you know, FTE right now, but we need it. And no funder is going to give us the money for it. So we will eventually absorb it, give us two to three years to absorb, you know, this position, a pretty expensive positions, um, but we can't do it all at once and we need it, right, in order for us to continue growing. So the growth could be incremental, but your need for infrastructure could be a step up growth, if that makes sense. So big time investment, you know, we'll grow into that and then another big time investment, but we have to find ways to absorb that. And that's one of the biggest issues I've seen with growth. Um, the funding is just not there for the infrastructure to accommodate it. But the point is, Tasha, then I, I need to have a multi-year budget or, or a planning cycle that acknowledges that in two to three years, we are going to need a full-time HR director or professional, but I need to start mm-hmm. looking at that now. And I would wonder if you see, sadly, a lot of nonprofits really are just focused on this year's budget and then squeezing that function of HR into the an existing infrastructure, which of course adds more stress. It doesn't. Exactly. And and I think the multi-year, you know, it, hopefully strategic plans are happening, but if they're not, a, a very basic strategic plan could be a multi-year budget. But also, you know, opening the minds to board members that know this, ba- this budget has to be balanced every year. And, and right. we know how it goes. Right. We get to the end of the year, we got a little bit of extra money. Everybody buy the supplies, buy the one-time things that you need now, but there's never enough money left over at the end of the year um, to absorb a full-time staff, right? Um, And then you start this cycle every year, this zero-based budgeting. And so when we know we're in a period of growth and there's reserves or money in the bank, the board making the strategic decision, hey, this is an an initial investment and we may not get our return on our investment immediately. It might take a year, it might take two years. So we might be operating at a deficit because we believe in the need for this role um, for the long-term success of the business. And uh, that's just an area where I think board members get very stuck on, it has to balance to zero. Um, and we're just never going to get that person. So you just start assigning those responsibilities to other people that frankly probably have no business doing that. Exactly. And you, it's a decline from there, isn't it? In terms of, instead of growing and being more effective at accomplishing your mission, you put yourself on a path that likely is going to stress the organization out. Absolutely. 
Well, you you alluded to this, Tasha, earlier when you were the CFO of a nonprofit, you actually wore many hats beyond just mm-hmm. the finance hat. Um, maybe talk about that. What are some of the business deals? I wonder if that's where you uh, saw firsthand the kind of business deals, if you will, that a nonprofit leader needs to be sensitive to that perhaps they haven't considered. You know, I think when I think of deals, I think of contracts, especially. And I think sometimes we look at it as a very much like a contract is a gift um, and not a business deal. So for example, when I took a job as the CFO, I started looking at many of these services that we were providing and the contracts associated with them. And we had not gone back and asked for rate increases for five, 10 years. And when we finally approached those funders and said, hey, we can't continue to absorb the cost of this, you know, the fundraising that we need to underwrite it. the, the cost point. of this program is outpacing our ability to fundraise. Right, right. Um, and they were pretty upset with us that we, they, they came back and said, you have not asked for a rate increase for 10 years. Why didn't you? Well, it's because we kind of have this, you know, well, let's fly under the radar. We don't want to make any waves. We, you know, we don't want to speak up for ourselves because we're just really grateful for the That's funding right. that they it's do scarcity give Scarcity mindset though, isn't it? In a way. Exactly. And um, we were successful in raising all of those contracts and I think a good lesson learned was to continuously go back and have those open conversations with your funders, because if you wait until you're too far behind and you're trying to ask for that big step up in your, in your contract, you know, award amount, it's going to create a bunch of problems. They're going to look at you like, well, why aren't you managing this better? Why didn't you come back and ask? Or, you know, um, so that's a big area that I've noticed. And for example, I'm working with a client, um, we inherited this kind of contract. Well, when I came on board with them, it's for $200,000. And they knew, they, and this was not a program they were doing. It's a brand new program. And this was a priority area for a funder. And the, fund, the funder gave us 200000 but we knew our budget was two hundred and fifty. So I had asked the CEO at the time, you know, why would we sign a contract for an area that we weren't even trying to do? We had no other fundraising lined up. It's a priority of theirs. Why didn't we push back more and say, this is a priority of yours. We're not already doing this, so it's not like we can already redeploy resources we currently have. But the budget's 250, so why aren't you giving us 250? And there wasn't an explanation for it. But it's like, right. well, that's just what we thought we could get. And I thought, but you've just now put yourself in a hole by fifty thousand um, dollars. That's such a know, good example. It, yeah. Well, and Tasha, I've seen that. All the time. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's right. What I was going to say is that we're just simply doing what we did last year, right? We just, without thinking, continue processes, contracts, relationships, and your good advice, it sounds like, is no, we need to step back, what, on an annual basis and and revisit every Mm -hmm. contract and make sure that it still makes sense. Yeah. And your financial report should be able to tell you that. So I'm able to say, well, actually we budgeted that it would be 250,000, but maybe it was only 240 or maybe it was 260. Right. Right. If your financial reports aren't telling you that either, um, you know, and you kind of think about this only in the nonprofit space is this, does this happen, right? So I, I have a, an accounting firm and I, I am a for-profit, right? Yeah. I know which clients are costing me money and which clients are generating me money. And I'm not going to keep uh, a group of clients that aren't making me money for very long because it takes <laughs> away resources for those clients that are sustainable for me. Indeed. Um, and if I ever want to give my employees a raise or increase their benefits or anything like that, or reinvest into my own company by, computers. I mean, we have the same issues, right? Just we're different tax status. 
And um, only in the nonprofit space do we just ex willingly accept some of these contracts. Now, in some cases, we have to, and we can make it work, and we have multiple funders, and, and, and I'm not suggesting we should never do that. But are we thinking about it really strategically? Are we willing to do that, and you know, what cost and for how long? And, and are we going to have open and honest conversations with our funders that we don't know how much longer this is going to make sense? So can you consider giving us more funding? Yeah. Um, Great advice. And yeah. you're right. There's a fundraising element there that if we just keep accepting uh, break even or worse relationships with funders, it's not going to work. And ultimately, we're not going to achieve the mission that we're supposed to be achieving. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Well, Tasha, let me jump into something else with you because, you know, a lot of conversations on this podcast have been in the fundraising space, the the rapid turnover of professionals in the mm -hmm. fundraising space, many of which I would suggest maybe find, you know, a greener pasture. They just jump to something else. But I'm, I'm worried, as you have educated me, that many finance professionals are leaving the nonprofit space. And I'm guessing not necessarily to go to another nonprofit, they're leaving entirely. Mm -hmm. So talk about that issue. And what do you think we can do about it? Yeah, I think that is the issue. Um, I, I think that's certainly true because I get calls from nonprofits scrambling to um, to replace that position. And it's really interesting that it, what I've seen a trend, it's not just the employees that are actually working for a nonprofit full-time or part-time, but it's actually also the service, the, the independent contractors. So maybe the CPA that has a few clients and they've chosen to move into a different direction. Um, and the reality is, at least from my experience, uh, working for an organization and what really kind of drove me to left, and I know many of my peers in the same way, that it, it's almost like we create these administrative roles. My official title is Director of Business and Finance. Right. Uh, you've been in the nonprofit space a long time. What does that even mean? That means <laughs> exactly. you do it all. Right, um, right. And this organization wasn't a small organization. It was you know, a little over 6 million. We had 82 employees. And so to wear the hats of HR and IT and facilities and risk management and accounting, those could all be independent jobs in and of itself. And so I think from the finance folks as a nonprofit person, you, you have to know somebody that knows accounting and you assume that they can just learn some of these other skills, right? So these accountants are getting recruited to do jobs that frankly, maybe only 20% of their actual job is accounting. The problem is, and I know from my own experience, that HR is a whole other set of very technical, complex things, but an accountant is pigeonholed into, you know, or forced into um, a we role. We dump it on your plate, don't we? Yeah, you're, yes. you're the business you office, no, you do it, right. You have no business being, uh, I mean, think about it. Um, if you were, if you needed an attorney, you wouldn't hire an accountant to do it. You exactly. Know? And this HR, HR is frankly the same way, um, and I, and I caution people, if you have an account that claims to know everything about HR, they're probably lying to themselves <laughs> and to you. Um, exactly. It's just not possible. And so I think, you know, somebody that, it, so there's that issue, right, of, of too many hats. But I think there's also a difference in what people don't realize with accountants is there, there are the accountants that like to do the day-to-day -day transactional things. Um, or there's generally the accountants that like to do the high-level strategy things. And so if you want, every nonprofit wants a high level strategy, CFO, financial partner, right? But 90% of the job is a day-to-day -day transactional stuff that doesn't feed their soul. It doesn't challenge them in any way. Interesting. Um, and in addition to that, you're, you're adding on all of these other tasks that aren't really in their interest either. So if you were a professional that loved doing high level analysis and, and you're a strategy partner, 
and 90% of your job was day-to-day bookkeeping and, you know, filing, uh, you know, payroll forms and, and all these other sorts of things, managing healthcare plans. Um, it just doesn't feed your soul. It's yeah, not, no it's not what you leaving. want to do with your career. Right. And so you're going to go find a job that might pay you more money to do the things that, that you really want to do. And I think, and I've had this conversation with a few nonprofits that, you know, 90% of your accounting is day-to-day transactional. It's just bookkeeping essentially. And that other kind of 10%, um, those are generally two different people. The problem is, and I empathize with nonprofits, they can't afford one person, much less two people. So how do they structure that work in a way that gets them what they need um, at, at a budget point that they can afford? And that's certainly the challenge. Now, I'm not giving you the solution. Yeah, not right. But <laughs> clarity, clarity, you're mm-hmm. certainly advocating, right? If And I, I, I would just suggest that, yeah, many organizations, we dump into the, quote, business office all these things and not step back and understand the person leading that. Uh, you may well be pushing them out the door. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. Um, and unfortunately I've seen a trend of that happening more and more. There's already a huge talent shortage in this space. Um, and the, the kind of too many hats, not enough resources and kind of putting people in positions they have no expertise on, um, or desire to actually frankly do that work. Um, it's going to be challenging for any business in any, any role, especially in the nonprofit space. I take away two things. One, as an executive director, I need to have better conversations with my chief financial officer and make sure they are indeed focused on the the finance that they likely want to do and is their highest value role for the organization. And I'm struck, Tasha, by your other point, be careful about dumping HR there, which I mm-hmm. think many of us do. And it, it makes me, I guess, as a, a nonprofit leader, I should step back and say, all right, is it time to hire that even at a fractional basis? HR so that it's not kind of, you know, just dumped on the plate of my finance person. Well, and there's the area that, um, you know, not just a burnout on the staff person because they don't want to do the work. There is a whole compliance component. I mean, it, some of the point. biggest penalties that an organization can get are due to HR violations, not accounting violations. Yes, I mean, there's very right. few like accounting violations that you're going to get. Your funders might be unhappy. You don't get your audit done in time or, you know, the IRS could fine you for, for submitting your 990, you know, late, but the biggest penalties are around HR issues. And if your finance person doesn't even know what those are. So I encourage many organizations, I myself am part of one, um, a PEO or a professional employers organization, or find some other function, not even needing to hire it outside. It's delegating the compliance requirements to someone else that is actually skilled in that area. And that's what a PEO does. They manage all of your payroll filings. They manage all of your benefits. It it, it essentially allows, allows me to sleep easier at night yes, um, yes. because I know that I'm not on the hook for that. And that's what you need to do. Just like you wouldn't, you would hire an attorney to mitigate or delegate some of the risk in terms of employment law or you know, whatever it might be, right? Um, you delegate to your accountant some of the financial management and misstepping on that. And who are you really delegating your HR stuff, knowing that it is the area most susceptible to fines and penalties? Great point. Come at it through a risk management lens, and that might add clarity to exactly some of these issues you're raising, right? And we mm-hmm. wouldn't be so quick to pour it onto one person's plate if we looked at it from that compliance perspective. Um, 
let me go back to something else, Tasha. Thanks for letting me bounce you around through these <laughs> these topics that you're so good <laughs> at. Um, why can't our accountant finance people get along with our fundraising and programming people? Uh, I, I say that a little bit tongue in cheek, but you mentioned earlier the fact that if the finance person is micromanaging the budget, uh, or at least that's mm -hmm. the perspective the program and fundraising people have, or is that an example of the kind of tension you've seen? Yeah, you know, it's funny, I've seen tension in all the different programs, like program, you know, from the programmatic side versus the fundraising side versus the finance side. And I think even at a very foundational level, I think you have two different personality types that are going to accept a position in the fundraising department versus someone in the accounting department. So you get to some personality general differences there. Yeah, um, right, accountants right. like to be in control, work proactively, stay hyper organized, and fundraisers kind of fly by the seat of their pants, I think much more than, than accountants do. And because so much of fundraising is dependent on the work of accountants, you know, you need budgets and those sort of things. I know some of my biggest challenges were just the lack of kind of organization and the flow of, of grant <laughs> right. writing um, right. anyway. But I think part of the issue too, is that accountants and the financial people are having those closed door meetings with really difficult conversations. And they really understand where the organization is and what they need. And I think sometimes fundraisers, they might come up with their plan and their strategy at the beginning of the year. They know we need to raise this money. There's these general report programs. And I don't know how much of the fundraising, the finance and the CEO really sit down and say, here are our priority areas now in this moment. This is what's changed from our initial budget now and in this moment. Because I know I would get grants for a program that we've already fundraised completely for. But I had other programs that we are completely underwater and I don't think that that conversation was ever made really clear to the fundraising department. So how can we work collaboratively together rather than kind of in our own individual silos? Uh, and, and like I was talking to um, a donor the other day, I said, it's interesting. I sometimes feel like a fundraising person myself because I really know the organizations that need the money and exactly where they need the money, right? Um, as opposed to just really kind of high level. So I definitely think that there's a, different objectives, um, lack of understanding, and sometimes just miss or lack of communication with respect to where we're at, where we're trying to go. Such a good point. And communication is the word I was going to underline as well. If we're only kind of going into the CFO's office to wrestle at the end of the year or high stress budget mm -hmm. times, no wonder we're not getting along. But if I had brought that topic to my CFO six months earlier, you know, he or she probably could have helped me work through it, right? I'm speaking as if I were a fundraiser or a program person. So I'm glad you mm -hmm. reiterate that exact uh, logic. Um, all right, Tasha, one more for you. Um, how do I know if I'm audit ready as a nonprofit leader? Are there a couple of headlines there? I know that's a complex question, but I wonder if you might yeah. share a few kind of highlights. So audit ready, I, I kind of open up my calls with, you know, my consultations with clients, you know, on a scale of one to 10, one being the worst, 10 being great, I have no issues. How good are we at retaining the support or the documentation for all of our transactions? Because at the end of the day, the auditors are going to come in and they're going to ask you questions and then they're going to say, prove it to me. There's support and evidence documentation, right? Gotcha, gotcha. And if you're not a seven, eight, nine, 10, you're probably not audit ready. And really accounting is just a system to keep track of everything in a way that could be audited, right? So all the numbers and then the corresponding documentation. And if you're one of those organizations that has some 
pretty sketchy credit card processes. And what I mean is people aren't submitting their documentation. They're not keeping their receipts. They lost them, forgot them, whatever it might be. Um, Or you don't make copies of the revenues that are coming in, the checks or whatever it might be that that are coming in. If you don't have a good organizational system for doing that, um, you're probably not audit ready yet. Uh, The auditors can kind of guide you into cleaning up your numbers and how they're presented on your financial reports. But if you are not keeping track of um, you know, all of that documentation, you're, you're in a, that's where you're going to get in trouble the most. They're going to say, you can tell me everything, but you can't prove anything. So we can't even finish this audit. So start there first. Yes. Um, good. And then certainly, you know, have an accountant that can articulate and present the financial information in a way that makes sense and seems reasonable to you. Um, but I would focus on the infrastructure and kind of their internal controls. So do you have checks and balances in place? Are there multiple people reviewing and reconciling things? Um, you know, when's the last time you looked at financial statements? Did they look reasonable or did they look pretty messy and confusing? Um, but first start with just getting your documentation, your paperwork in order. And then, you know, you could certainly try to do kind of a baby audit or what I call a review um, or a compilation. It's, it's having an independent CPA come in and look at the numbers and say, this is, this looks on track or this looks completely wrong. Questions and that here, will help right. you get some sense. Yeah. That'll help you get some sense on where things are at. Now you may not feel audit ready, but the States, every state has kind of their own requirements. Many States have requirements. And of course your funders have requirements. You're going to get an audit, whether you're ready or not. And then the auditors are going to tell you, what do you need to really be ready next year? Right. Um, but the more the more you can set yourself up for success, frankly, the cheaper the audits are going to be and the less painful. Because remember, your auditors will give you a letter. It's called a letter of internal controls. And it will spell out any major issues they had in your audit. And oftentimes, your funders will ask for your audit and your letter of internal controls. And the last thing you want is a laundry list of things that you did not have in place. Right. Um, because that gets shared with your funders if they request it. Got it. Great advice, Tasha, throughout this conversation, a masterclass literally in finance. And if I'm an executive director, you know, I may or may not have complete confidence in the financial arena, but you've literally given our listeners some things to think about and, and perhaps use as a checklist as they ponder their leadership going forward. I wonder, is there anything else, I guess, in summary and in closing, if someone said, Tasha, I'm thinking about, you know, becoming a nonprofit leader, is there any other advice you'd mm-hmm. offer? Yeah, we didn't really touch on this so much, but why I see the accounting gets so messy is because they have changes in that particular role. Um, lots of turnover. Uh, and I think in, in many positions, um, so I think you can use this as global, but especially in the, the financial space, systemize your business and document your processes and delegate them to the appropriate roles. And so everything that should be done on the financial side, and you can apply that to any program or any department, um, but make sure that that there is a rhyme or a reason and a methodology for why things are done so that as that position changes, you have some training opportunities for the incoming person and to make sure that that's done consistently. Because accountants are gonna have different impressions and different interpretations on how they do things. And that's where you start to have the messiness because one account did it one way and another account do it a different way. And then if that keeps changing hands before you know it, the complete integrity of, of the accounting system is lost. So great point. Systemize and, and document that. Yeah. Well, Tasha, this has been wonderful. Uh, thank you for sharing your wisdom with our listeners. 
Um, we are definitely going to need for them to check out the show notes so they can learn more about you and the good work you're doing, which I want to get to in a minute. But first, if I could ask you for one more parting gift, uh, uh, might you recommend a book that's been meaningful to you or you think would be meaningful to our listeners? Yeah, maybe it's the old auditor in me, but I really love <laughs> systemizing everything, documenting everything, because the more that we can invest up front, uh, the longer and easier our lives will be in the long in the long game. Mm-hmm. So one of my favorite books and essentially what I built my entire business on, The E-Myth by Michael Gerber, um, oh, it yeah. really talks about systemizing, documenting, delegating to the appropriate people, holding them accountable. And I think in my experience in the nonprofit space, we don't do this enough. Uh, and I think we can run our operations much more efficiently and at least have some systems of accountability and, and everybody knows who's supposed to be doing what and when. Um, so the E-Myth by Michael Gerber is game changer for me. Love that. It is indeed on my bookshelf as well, Tasha. So we share a, a uh, likely fandom of uh, Michael Gerber. So glad you lifted it up. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I think it has a lot of nonprofit applications, doesn't it? That every organization Mm -hmm. could benefit from that. And speaking of benefiting from your advice and counsel, uh, tell our listeners, Tasha, where they can find out more about you and the good work you're doing through the Charity CFO. Sure. Probably the main hub is visiting our website, uh, www.thecharitycfo.com. You can subscribe to our newsletter and hear all of the things that we're doing. We're in the process right now of finalizing a free digital course I get the question all the time. Uh, how can you teach my board members how to read financial statements? Um, <laughs> so so that's going to be the training. <laughs> yeah. I am making it into a course. It's a free course. So anyone listening, go to our website, subscribe. Uh, hopefully that'll be launched in the next 30 days. So hopefully by the end of February. And um, anybody that's on our newsletter will get the latest information about the accessibility of that. Um, or you can join our Facebook group. We like to collaborate and share information. If you just search for a modern nonprofit, we have a Facebook group there and tap into me, tag me, and I'm happy to answer any questions about financial or just my experience working in the nonprofit space overall. Uh, from an operational standpoint, uh, you can find us there at a modern nonprofit to find that Facebook group. It's fantastic. That's fantastic, Tasha. Thank you for being such a great resource to the nonprofit community. And thank you for joining me on the path. It's been great. Thank you so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Tasha as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can guide your professional journey and help you ask the right questions in the financial arena. Don't forget the show notes. They're available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com. You can find out more about Tasha herself and the many resources she's providing through the charity CFO. As always, please share this episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe. Go to the podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com and you'll see links to Apple, Spotify, and all of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday, as well as bonus features we're producing at least once a month. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.